The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the first psalm and in the last two verses of that psalm, verses 5 and 6 in the first psalm. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We are considering this psalm and its message for the fourth time. The word therefore at the beginning of verse 5 connects it obviously with what has been going before it. And we have been for the previous three Sunday nights looking at this great and wonderful message that is here in this very first psalm, which is a kind of introduction to the entire book of psalms and in many ways can be described as an introduction to the whole of the biblical message. Now, these two verses come at the end of the psalm. They're the conclusion, and in a sense, they're also a climax. What this man is doing here, as I've been showing, is to teach us and to instruct us as to the one and only way in which happiness or blessedness can be found. And the method he has adopted is the method of comparison and contrast. You see, this is his statement. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Well, I, as I've shown you again by reading the psalm, he puts this message concerning blessedness or happiness before us by painting these pictures. Two men, two types of men, godly and ungodly, two ways of life, the godly life, the sinful, or the ungodly life. And his point is, as I say, to show that the only hope of real, true happiness is that we be godly. Happiness, he says, depends, he says, depends ultimately upon our relationship to God and upon what we are as a consequence of that. But now we are looking at the last two verses. He comes to the end and to the climax. And this in and of itself, it seems to me, is something which is very typical and characteristic of the Bible. The Bible always gives us a complete statement. It always gives us a whole view. The Bible never stops short. It never leaves anything unfinished. If it sets out to deal with a case, it tells you everything about the case. And so in these last two verses, we find this man following what he's been saying 
Therefore, he said, he follows it to its climax and to its ultimate and inevitable logical conclusion. His message for me to summarize it for those who have not been here the previous Sundays is something like this. He says, happiness, true happiness, is possible and is obtainable in a world even such as this world. It is something that can be obtained immediately, at once. It's not contingent upon other things. It depends upon this one thing only. He goes on to say that it is a happiness which lasts, which continues. A happiness that enables us to meet all possibilities and eventualities and contingencies. We've considered all that. But now here he goes further. It is a happiness, he tells us, that goes on forever. It doesn't stop even at this world. It goes on even into the next world. You see, he tells us about the nature of the happiness, the continuation of the happiness in spite of everything, and the fact that it is an eternal happiness, a happiness that can even meet the last enemy and what lies beyond him, a happiness that goes on throughout the countless ages of eternity. And by contrast, of course, he's been telling us that that godless, worldly, sinful life is a very poor thing in and of itself. It's nature. It's What is it? It's just chaff. Heap of chaff. Nothing but that. It's a poor thing. It's no character. There's nothing about it. It's a complete contrast with this tree that he describes. And he tells us that it's never of any real value or profit to us. Never. The sinful life is always a profitless life. There's nothing to be said for it. Chaff. The wind blows away. But, and this is the thing that he comes to in these last two verses, it is something that always leads finally and eventually to nothing but disaster. Now, we are concerned tonight only, of course, with this end. That's the thing that he puts before us in these two verses. And I want to try to show you how this, this consideration of the end, is the thing that uh, makes the biblical teaching, the biblical message, so unique. It's the thing that marks it off from every other type and kind of teaching that is offering itself to the human race at this very moment. Now, let me put it to you like this. The ultimate trouble with the man who is ungodly or sinner or scornful, call him what you will, these terms are all used about him here and they're used elsewhere in the Bible, but the ultimate trouble with the sinner is, of course, that he's just a fool. Why do I say that he's a fool? Well, he's a fool for this reason that he tends to live only for the present. He never looks ahead. He lives for the present. He's concerned about the happiness of the moment. He doesn't consider consequences. He doesn't consider effects. He doesn't consider results. All he wants is this thing now that he can get. The Bible has a term for all that. It calls it inordinate. Inordinate affections. It can't wait. Must have it now. Now, this is what the Bible tells us everywhere about uh, the Bible, about this sinner. That he's a man, I say, who has this uh, small view of life, present only, self-centered, selfish, small. 
and he refuses to go on and to look at and to face the end of life. He not only doesn't do that, but uh, even if you try to persuade him to do so, he argues against you. He dislikes it. And he dismisses it. He says the thing to do is to live for the present. Why go and anticipate the future? It'll be here soon enough. Why go and meet troubles? Live for the moment. Enjoy yourself. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that's the typical attitude, and it dislikes any thought or suggestion or teaching that it should look ahead and consider what's going to happen and what it's all leading to. The tragedy, I say, about the ungodly is that he lives from day to day, hand to mouth, lives in the present and thinks only of present happiness and satisfaction and enjoyment. And even further, when you remind him of the fact that he's after all, after all mortal and that he needs must come to an end, oh, he says it's all. I'm, I'm not concerned about that because he says that when a man dies, that's the end and there's no more to be said about it. Now, that's the modern attitude. It doesn't believe in the unseen. It doesn't believe in the spiritual realm. It doesn't believe in general in a future life. This world only. Now, I say that uh, this man who holds those views is a fool for this reason. That he has no proof at all for what he's saying. He can't demonstrate anything. He can't prove that this is the only life and the only world. He doesn't know. But in spite of any proof, in spite of any sanctions for his position, in spite of his inability to demonstrate the rightness and the correctness of what he's saying, he risks all upon a conjecture, upon a mere theory, upon a mere supposition. In a spirit of bravado, he doesn't care, he says, and he's not prepared to listen. Well, now, I say there's only one word to use with respect to a man who's in that position. And that is that he is a fool. The world doesn't like to face and to consider the future, but the Bible everywhere pleads with us to do so, reasons with us to do so, is always appealing to us to do so, exactly as this man does here in this first psalm. Now, let me summarize its essential teaching with regard to this matter. The Bible, in other words, always emphasizes what I've called the wholeness or the unity of life. The Bible says, don't stop at considering your past and your present. Anticipate the future. Look ahead. The Bible never gives us a sort of piecemeal message. The world, of course, does that with its pleasures. It's not interested in your thinking ahead. Have a good time now. Have this enjoyment now. Have this thing that appeals to you now. No, no, says the Bible. Look ahead. Don't enjoy this until you've considered what it may lead to. Don't go and do anything until you've considered possible effects and results and consequences. Life, says the Bible, is a whole. And whether you like it or not, it is a whole. It is a unity. It is past, present, and future. It is youth, middle age, old age. It is being born. It is living. It is dying. There's a unity, there's a wholeness. Well, consider it all, says the Bible. Don't stop short at any point. That's its first emphasis. The second is this. It just proclaims that death is not the end. That when a man dies, it is not the end. This is its message everywhere, right through Old Testament and New. 
that this is only a temporary world, that we're only pilgrims and strangers here, journeymen, travellers. And that beyond this life and this world there is another, and we go on into that. The Bible proclaims this. Death is not the end. Indeed, in the third place, it always tells us that after death there is a judgment. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. This is one of its great fundamental postulates, as I'm going to show you. Death is not only the end, the death uh, leads to judgment. And fourthly, and this is the vital thing, our everlasting and eternal destiny, our endless life in that spiritual realm to which we go when we go out of this world, our destiny there is determined by our life and our attitude in this world. What happens to us there is the inevitable outcome, the logical outcome of what we are here. What I think, what I believe, how I live. That's the point this man is making. You see, this comparison between the godly and the ungodly, what they are, how they live, and so on, therefore, this is the end of it all. Here's the final contrast. Well, now, here is, I say, this great central message of the Bible with respect to life. And you see what this man is saying can be put in this form. The only man who is truly blessed and happy is the man who has catered for all and who is ready for all. The end, death, and what lies beyond it included. Now, that's the secret, says this man, of happiness and of blessedness. You cannot atomize life. You can't divide it right off into segments. You've got to take the whole. It's a moving something like a stream flowing along. And if you want to be really blessed and happy, says this man, well, then you've got to consider the end as well as the beginning. You've got to get the whole view. It's all one piece. And what's going to happen to you there is determined by what you are here and now. Very well, then, here is this message which this man puts before us. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that many people in this world are all their lifetime subject to bondage because of the fear of death. Shakespeare agrees. Thoughts of that unknown born from which no traveler returns. You can't get true happiness in this world unless you've got a faith that sees through death. It's impossible, because however happy you may be at this moment, you never know. There's always the threat, there's always the possibility. You can't relax, as it were. All their lifetime subject to bondage because of the fear of death. So this man says, all right, that's perfectly true. You must have a view of life that caters for the beginning and the end, all inclusive. And then and then alone are you truly blessed. Oh, the blessedness of the man. That's how he starts off. Well, now then, let us consider this matter of the end. And I'll put it to you in order to simplify the teaching into some three main propositions. The first thing which we have to be clear about is, is the fact of judgment. 
Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. I have said already that this is a part of the essential biblical message. That man is a responsible being. That he's not an animal. He's a responsible being. And as a responsible being, he's held accountable. And he will have to give an account of himself. The judge. This message says that all men and women, everybody who's ever been into this world, will have to stand in a final judgment, in a final assignment. But of course, the moment I say that, I know that I'm saying something that is utterly repellent to the modern men and to the modern mind. Fancy, he says, still saying that. I know he says that a century or so ago, and perhaps even until 50 years ago, preachers used to make great business with this judgment and used to frighten people into becoming religious. They terrified them with thoughts of hell and punishment and judgment to believe the gospel and to live a good and a godly life. But of course, by now, we know that this is all wrong. There's nothing in it. There's no such thing. And their reason for saying that, they say, is that uh, if you believe in God at all, if you believe in a God of love, well, then judgment is a sheer and utter impossibility. You can't have it both ways, they say. If you do believe in a God of love, well, judgment is something that is utterly incompatible with such a God and with such love. Well, I don't want to argue about this tonight. I've got something much more important to do. But I do want to suggest this as I hurry along and as we pass along. All this objection to judgment, you see, is based ultimately upon completely false views of God and of the love of God. Let me just ask you a simple question. What do you really know about God? What right have we to postulate things about God? What right have I to say, well, now I say that if God is God and if God is a God of love, he cannot at the same time be a just and a righteous God, he cannot be a judge. What right have I to say that? What do I really know about God? And the answer is that all we know about God is what God has been pleased to reveal concerning himself. And the only knowledge we have concerning God's revelation of himself is what we have in this book. Oh, I know you've got it in nature. Thank God for it. I see his wisdom. I see his power. I see his design. Oh, I can see God not only in nature. I can see him in history. I see him in providence. I know. But still, you see, the God you know in those ways is an unknown God. Really, to know the character of God, you've got to come to this book. Here is the record of God's revelation of himself to men. These men don't say, this is what I think about God. They say, no, God spoke to me. God gave a revelation to me. God called a man like Moses up on top of Mount Sinai and began to speak and said, this is true, I am. We are entirely confined to this book. And therefore, my dear friend, if you say you don't believe in a judgment because you can't understand and because you can't reconcile it with what you think God's love is, well, I say you are just basing your whole position on ignorance and upon speculation, upon what you hope, what you'd like to believe. You've got no basis for it at all. Over and against all this modern rejection of the notion of judgment, stands the Bible itself. And if there's anything that's plain in the Bible, it is judgment. When God made men and put him in the garden, he said, now then, if you break my laws, out you go. And out he went. 
As I'm never tired of pointing out, our world is as it is tonight because of judgment. The world is as it is in sin because of God's judgment upon sin. He cursed the ground. He drove men out of paradise and put the flaming sword in the cherubim to prevent his coming back. That's judgment in practice, in operation. The Old Testament is full of it. You get it in the case of individuals. You get it in the case of the whole nation of Israel. Even his own people. He sends them into the captivity of Babylon because of their sin. Judgment. He said he would do it and he's done it. Our Lord, when you come to the New Testament, you find the same thing. The first preacher that appears before us is John the Baptist. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And as he addressed the congregation of Pharisees and scribes and others, he said, Who hath warned you to flee from what? From the wrath to come. That's the first note in the New Testament. Why is this a gospel of salvation? Why is it good news? There's only one reason for calling the Christian message a gospel good news. It is this, that it saves us from the judgment and the wrath to come. John the Baptist, the precursor, the forerunner, he preached it. But our Lord preached it. Did you hear what we read just now from the fifth chapter of John's gospel? The day is coming, he says, when all who are in the graves are going to rise, and they're going to rise to judgment. It's either going to be life or damnation. You talk about love. Does anybody know anything about love in comparison with the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He's the very incarnation of love. He's come into the world because God is love, because God so loved the world. And yet that's his teaching. There it is from his own lips. Judgment. And it's one or the other. A judgment of damnation or a judgment of which just proclaims that we are the people of God and that we go on to everlasting bliss. There it is, I say, in the teaching of our Lord and it's in the teaching of all the apostles. Save yourselves, says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon rarely under the auspices of the Christian church. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The apostle Paul preached the same thing, standing on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, for he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given us assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. Judgment. Listen, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, we ought to give the more honest heed to these things that ye have heard, lest at any time he let them slip. Why? Well, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, escape, judgment, it is appointed unto all men once to die, he says later on and after death, the judgment. Peter agrees the day of the Lord will come. It's bound to come. A thousand years are but as one day with the Lord, and one day as thousand years, but the day of the Lord will come. It must come, the day of judgment. It's everywhere. Book of Revelation, what is it? Oh, it's but a preview of this ultimate final judgment of the whole universe, the entire cosmos. That's the answer to all the modern objections. I leave it at that. The fact of the judgment, it's the solemn fact which is held before us everywhere in the Bible. Don't live anyhow, says the Bible. Don't follow the ungodly. Why? Well, because you've got to face a judgment. 
But let me go to the second principle, which is this, the nature of the judgment. The character or the nature of the judgment. It's a judgment that takes place partly in this world. Sin produces a certain amount of punishment even in this world. I won't keep you with that. That can be bad enough. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, yes, but the way of the transgressor is hard. The sinner always gets into trouble. You can't break God's laws and just go on as if nothing had happened. You've got to pay for it. Remorse. Self-castigation. Damage, perhaps, to your physical body. Harm done to your faculties, God-given faculties. There's a judgment, there's a punishment even in this present world. But the great message of the Bible is, of course, to tell us that it's at the end the judgment rarely comes. All these other things are but adumbrations of the judgment. All the judgments in the Bible, indeed, are but foreshadowings of the final judgment, preparing us for its signpost, fingerpost, pointing to what is, about to, is bound to come at the end of the age. Well, what is its teaching? The teaching is this, to put it as simply as I can that everybody will have to appear before God in the judgment, the whole world, those who are still alive, uh, those who have died, and those who have been ground in the sea. Everything's going to give up its death. The graves, the oceans, the elements everywhere, the dead shall rise. All who have ever lived in this world will appear before God in the judgment. What else are we told about it? Well, it is God's judgment. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The judge is the Lord himself, the judge of all the earth, as Abraham described him. He is the judge. He's the judge because it is his will, because he made it, because it belongs to him, because he set it going, because he's laid down the conditions. He is the judge because he alone is just and righteous. He is judge, if I may put it with reverence, because he alone is fit to be judge and has the right to judge. But you notice that our Lord there in the fifth of John has taught us that the judgment has been committed to him because he is the son of man to make it yet more fair. Men might say, oh, but what does God know about life lived by a man in this world? The answer is the father has committed the judgment to the son. And the Son has become a man. The Word was made flesh. The Son has lived in this world, has been tempted in all points like as we are. He understands us. He knows all about it. He's the judge. Judgment is committed to him. The Apostle Paul, as I've reminded you, taught the same in his sermon on Mars Hill in Athens. So the picture is, you see, of a day which is to come when the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return to this world and will judge it in righteousness. What are the terms of the judgment? Well, the terms of the judgment are made quite clear in the Bible. We will be judged according to the thing this man has talked so much about, the law of the Lord. He tells us of this godly man that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. The law of the Lord. Now the law of the Lord is simply this. 
It is what God has said to men about himself. I mean about men. It is what God has been pleased to tell men in different ways and at different times as to what he expects from him. You see, God made him, and he has told us that he has made men in his own image and likeness. That's his object. That's the object and purpose of his creation. He is to be a kind of reflection of God in the world. God has made everything, but he's made man a kind of underlord. He's lord of creation, under God. That's how God made him. God, having made us, put certain laws into us and gave us certain laws outside. And he said, now this is how I want you to live. So, from time to time, he's given us some very explicit statements of this law. And the clearest in the Old Testament, of course, is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are but God's statement as to how he expects men to live and what he demands of men and what he will finally and eventually expect of him. Men will be judged by the Ten Commandments. God has said, well, nobody need claim ignorance any longer. Here it is. I put it before you. This is what I want. That's how I'm going to judge you. Men will be judged by the Ten Commandments. God has said, well, nobody need claim ignorance any longer. Here it is. I put it before you. This is what I want. That's how I'm going to judge you. You've got it in the teaching of the prophets, expounding this law. And then our Lord in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, he expands it still more perfectly. The Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of God's law. This is what God demands. This is what God expects. If you like, I'll sum it all up for you. Our Lord has done so. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. And you and I, my friends, will be judged by that law. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Thou shalt not make any graven image and bow down to it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not take the day of the Lord in vain. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his ox, nor his ass, and so on. And remember, all that especially as interpreted in a spiritual manner by our Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount, which shows that it isn't the actual deeds alone that matter, but the thoughts, the desires, the things we feel. God knows them all. Very well, those are the terms of the judgment. But what is emphasized here in particular by this man in these two verses in the first psalm is what I may call the thoroughness of the judgment. Have you ever noticed that? Listen. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The thoroughness of the gospel. The Lord knows. He knows everything. He is omniscient. There is nothing that he doesn't know. There is nothing again, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, that is hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Lord knoweth. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You can't sin behind a shut door as far as God is concerned. It's impossible. He's everywhere. He knows everything. The Bible teaches this in many different forms. 
The psalmist complains, poor men, thou knowest, he says, my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts are far off. I can't get away from you. That's how he puts it. And the New Testament puts it in this way. It tells us that there are great books, if you like. It's a picture of great ledgers kept in hidden. And every one of us has got a page in that ledger. And everything that every one of us has ever done or thought or said, it's there recorded, written in the book. So that in the judgments, the books are produced. And everything is known about us. The thoroughness of the judgment. Nothing can be hidden from the sight of God. The very fact that God is God makes that inevitable, of course, but this is the thing that we forget. We are so clever at doing things without knowing one another in this world. We can deceive one another, and we can lie and get out of it. And we rather admire the men who can always get out of it. But nobody can get out of it with God. The Lord knoweth. Nothing is hidden from his sight. But you know there's another terrible way in which that is put here. Did you notice it? Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. No sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What's this? Well, this is the most terrifying thing of all. The congregation of the righteous. What's that? Well, if you take the similar use of this word, congregation, as you find it in the Bible, you will find the congregation means exactly the same thing as the church. Or you'll find that sometimes it stands for God's people. The congregation is God's people, God's own people. It's the church. Very well. And what he says is that the sinners shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous. You see, what he means is this. That while you and I are in this world, we can be in the congregation of the righteous. You and I can be members of Christian churches and we can pass as godly and as Christian people. But what he's telling us is this, that because God knows everything, it doesn't follow that we're going to continue in the congregation of the righteous after the judgment because God knows all about us. And there is going to be a terrible sifting and a terrible dividing. There is a gathering, a congregation, and they all fondly imagine that they're God's people. And then he will come in the judgment and he'll sift. He'll divide. Now, lest anybody may think that this is just Old Testament teaching, let me give it to you in its New Testament garb and out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here he is again. Let me give you the exact words in the Sermon on the Mount. He is ending the Sermon on the Mount. And you see, he generally ends his sermons on this note of judgment. And he puts it like this. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Ye that work iniquity. But Lord, they say, we are, we are members of the congregation. Uh, haven't you been in our streets? You, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devil, and in thy name done many wonderful works? We belong to the congregation. The word will come, I never knew. 
You are not a stand in the congregation of the righteous. You don't belong to them. You never have done. You insinuated yourself amongst them. You wanted to get all the benefits. But God knows everything. And I know everything. Get out. And as if that were not enough, he spoke three parables on the same thing. You'll find them in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. There he is in chapter 24 dealing with the end of the world, the judgment. Somebody said to him, when's the end of the world coming? He said, don't you worry about when you concentrate on what will happen when it does come. And he spoke three parables. Do you remember them? Here's the first, ten virgins. Yes, but the same division as we have in our psalm. Five were wise, five were foolish. But they all appear to be the same. Ten virgins. They'd all got lamps. They were all going to a wedding feast. There's no difference, you say. Ah, the answer is, they're all in the congregation. But when the bridegroom comes, there are only five in the congregation. And there are five hammering at the door, trying to get in. But they're not given admission. They're outside. They thought they were all right. The whole point of the parable is to teach that. The danger, the terrible danger of thinking and assuming that you're in the congregation because you got a lamp and because you want to go to the feast. But they had no oil, none of this vital spirit of life. And they're outside. The next parable, you remember those three men and their talents. It's exactly the same point. And the last one, the final judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goats. You see, the assumption was that they were all the same. The whole point of the parable is to say, no, he will divide sheep and goats. Standing in the congregation of the righteous, not standing in the congregation of the righteous. Oh, the thoroughness of the judgment, my dear friends. We are dealing with one to whom all things are naked and open. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Lord knoweth. We are not dealing with men. We are dealing with the omniscient, almighty, and everlasting God. And that brings me to my third and my last principle, which is this one. The consequences of the judgment, the fact of the judgment, the character, the nature of the judgment, and finally the consequences of the judgment. And here it is, of course, in this graphic, tremendous phrase. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of the righteous. What's he mean? Well, shall I put it here into the colloquial language of today? What he's saying is this, that the ungodly in that final judgment will not have a leg to stand on. That's how we put it. He'll not stand in the judgment. He hasn't got a leg to stand on. His whole case is demolished. What's it mean? Well, it means this, that he'll be speechless. He won't have a word to say. He won't have a reply to offer. What'll be the charges? Well, here they are. He's never given God a thought. He lived as if there were no God. He'd been made by God for God's own pleasure and that he might glorify God. And enjoy him forever. But he hadn't thought of God. He'd lived his life as if there were no God. He'd gone his own way. And if God were mentioned to him, he hated the thought. He didn't love God. He's supposed to love God with the whole of his being. But he hated God. 
and felt God was against him, and he reviled the name of God. That's one thing. Secondly, he hasn't lived, as I say, to God's honor and glory. He hasn't kept the law of God and the commandments of God. Instead of delighting in the law of the Lord and making it his meditation day and night, he has hated it, he's cursed it, he's spat upon it. He's ridiculed it. He says that's just keeping a man down. I believe, he said, in self-expression. I don't believe in curbing myself. I let myself go. If I want a thing, I have a right to it. He spurned the voice of God. He's trampled on the decencies and the sanctities. And he's gloried in it. He's made a beast of himself and has been proud of himself as he's done so. He says that is, that's to be a man and not some namby-pamby, miserable Christian. That's the sort of thing that will face him. And in the same way, he will be examined and questioned as to his view of himself. His view of men. His view of the soul. He's lived in this world saying that man is nothing but a reasoning animal. He doesn't believe in a special creation. He doesn't believe that man was made in the image of God. Man, he says, is just an animal that's evolved. And thereby, of course, he's insulting his own nature and insulting the God who made him. And he's lived a life that corresponds to it, this life of chaff. And as he stands there in the judgment and sees the Son of Man, sees the Son of God who became man and has given us a representation of what manhood means and what man is meant to be, he'll be speechless. And then he'll be examined with regard to the quality and the value of the life that he has lived. And he'll see that it's utterly and entirely useless. A balance sheet will be struck. What's the end result of the things to which he's given himself? The things for which he's lived, the things on which he's gloated, the things which he's enjoyed. What's the end result? What's the value? Chaff! Useless chap. But you know, he doesn't stop at that. He will try now to justify himself and say, But I didn't know. I didn't realize. And he's silenced again. He isn't a leg to stand on. There is no excuse. The knowledge has been given. The revelation is here. The Bible is full of it. God has spoken. There is no plea. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Here it is, and a man should make himself acquainted with it. And God has made it plain in his word, in his prophets, in his apostles, in his preachers. God is speaking to men, warning them, telling them what he demands. There is no plea. There is no excuse. Ignorance is inexcusable because God has given the revelation. But you know the final thing that will demolish this poor man and leave him without a single leg to stand on. And there he'll be like a heap of chaff in the judgment, not standing. Why, well, because he'll be confronting the Son of God himself. If he turns to him and says, but the standard was too high, who could live that? 
Who could love God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength and his neighbor as himself? Who could live only to the glory of God and to his praise? Who could keep the sermon of the mount? Who could live the Ten Commandments? It's asking impossibilities. It's unfair. And the answer will come back. Look at me. I left heaven and came into your world in order to save people like you. I came not to save and to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. My teaching was that they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. The Son of Man, I said, is come to seek and to save. And listen, he'll say, publicans and sinners heard me and came after me. Men and women fallen into sin to the very depths and dregs. They listened, they came, they believed, and here they are, standing in the judgment. There is no excuse left. The final condemnation is that God's offer of free salvation in Christ Jesus was spurned and refused and rejected and despised. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. He's demolished. He hasn't a leg to stand on, but alas, it doesn't stop at that. The way of the ungodly shall perish. Finding himself without a word of explanation and without a single plea, without a leg to stand on. He will be sent into the outer darkness. I'm quoting our Lord's words, outer darkness. To a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Still his words. To a place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Still the words of the Son of God. The way of the ungodly shall perish. Everlasting destruction. From the presence of the Lord. My dear friend. That is the end and the inevitable outcome of the life of the ungodly. The sinner. The scorner. The chaff, the man that rejects God and his holy law and his son. That's the end. Why is all this written? And the answer is it is written because God is love. It is written to warn us while there is yet time. It is written to save us. It is written to show us that there is a way of deliverance, a way of escape. That is the whole message of the Christian gospel. That is why Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. Because we are all by nature ungodly. We are all sinful. And if we die like that, we'll go to that destruction, to that everlasting punishment of hell. But God has sent his message, and it is a message that calls us to repentance, to an acknowledgement and a confession of our sin. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message. Nothing else. See the blindness and the madness and the iniquity of it all. See the end to which it leads. Acknowledge it, repent, fall before God and confess it and admit you haven't a leg to stand on. And then 
believe his gospel in and through his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Today is the day of salvation. The door is not shut. There is no need to go to that end. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Though all this is true of the ungodly, if he believes that Christ the Son of God came into the world to live and die and rise again for his reconciliation with God, immediately he is forgiven. He's received by God. He becomes a child of God. He becomes like this tree. And Lord knoweth his ways, and he'll go on into the everlasting bliss and glory. That is the message. That's why this is written, to warn us, to call us, to repent and to return to God, and to believe the gospel of his dear Son. Have you believed all this, my friend? Have you seen the need of the coming of the Son of God into this world? Have you visualized the judgment? Can you stand? Will you be able to stand at that great day? If you have seen tonight as you've never seen before that you'll not be able to stand, I'm here and it's my great privilege to tell you. God calleth yet. Today is the day of salvation. Believe it and say with me, Today thy mercy calls me to wash away my sin, however great my trespass, whatever I have been, however long from mercy I may have turned away. Thy blood, O Christ, can cleanse me and make me white, today. Or if you prefer it, put it in these words of Count Zinzendorf, translated by John Wesley. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in this arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through thee I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Or would you prefer it in the words of Augustus Toplady? When I saw through tracks unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself. In thee, believe on this Lord. And then you'll be able to believe the Apostle Paul when he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us? You're safe. No one can bring any charge against you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to him and say something like this if you have never said it before. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone the peace, the joy 
I sought so long the bliss till now unknown. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Saviour by, his love laid hold on me. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. E'en as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now, none but Christ can satisfy me. None other name for me. There's life, there's life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus, found in thee. It comes to this, my dear friend. There's no other way for happiness. There's no other way to stand. But if you believe in Christ, you'll be able to say, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through thee I am. From sin and death and guilt and shame. In Christ, you need not fear the judgment. For the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You can't stand on anything else in this world. You won't be able to stand in the judgment on anything else. The sinner shall not stand in the judgment. Like the chaff, he'll be blown away. But on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, my dear friend. Are you standing on the rock, Christ Jesus? Is he your only hope tonight? Are you saying, do you say honestly, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved now. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.